Psalm 8. Uh, let me start by just asking a question. Uh, in what setting do you do your best thinking? In what setting do you do your best thinking? Now, I'm not talking about mundane thinking, like how will the Razorbacks uh, do with the transfer portal, or what color should we paint the living room, or my favorite, uh, I wonder what's for dinner. But in what setting do you do your, your best deep thinking? You know, maybe it's the beach sitting by the ocean, or, or maybe it's a rocking chair on a porch uh, somewhere, or, uh, or, or maybe it's on a long drive or, or taking a long walk. But where do you do your best thinking? And I ask that because in Psalm 8, we seem to have David sitting out at night and thinking about God. And as he thinks about God, his thoughts then turn to himself. And as he thinks about God and himself, his, his thoughts then turn in the most natural way to the relationship between he and God. Uh, Ted Tripp says, we're made to stand back and gape, to wonder and to be overwhelmed by the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God. And not only that, but we're made to do that because standing back and thinking deeply about God has really important implications for our life. A.W. Tozer said, what is God like? What kind of God is he? How may we expect him to act towards us and towards all created things? Such questions are not merely academic. They touch the far-in reaches of the human spirit, and their answers affect life and character and destiny. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because seeing God as he truly is, seeing God as he truly is, and, and man, ourselves, as we truly are, just draws us to live lives of faith and of humility and obedience and worship. So let's spend the rest of our Sunday here together thinking along with David as he contemplates God and himself and his relationship in Psalm 8. God's very words to us. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, that you care for him. 
You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, I, I pray today, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would meet us and that, like David, we would be able to rightly contemplate the realities of your majesty, the realities of our relationship with you and that you, you have given us a glory and an honor. And uh, so I pray that we would, you'd help us today, Holy Spirit, help us today to know Father, Son, Holy Spirit better, to know ourselves better and to understand what it means that um, you have called us to be unique in all of your creation. Uh, Holy Spirit, to that end, I need you. Please help me to communicate well your word to your people and please help your people to hear not only with their ears and their minds, but with their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, we want to do a couple things. We want to look at the glory of God. Then we want to look at the glory of man. And then we want to kind of talk about so what difference does that make in our everyday lives? So first, the glory of God. David uses the term majestic. Uh, majestic is uh, a synonym for words in scripture like wonderful, awesome, holy, glorious. Uh, words that, that scripture uses, the writers of scripture use to summarize the uniqueness of God and to summarize the greatness of God. They're words that, that don't so much say one thing about God, but words that are used to encapsulate or capture everything about God, his majesty. And it's interesting that uh, David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, and he actually uses two different words here for Lord. O oh Lord, whenever you see Lord in all caps in your Old Testament, it, it's the name Yahweh. It's God's covenant name, uh, the name that he has given to his people that defines their unique relationship with him. So he starts, David starts, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, oh our covenant God. But then secondly, he uses another word for Lord that just expresses God's personal relationship, that this great creator, majestic, holy, awesome God is, is ours. He relates with us. He, he personally knows us and loves us and, and cares for us. So, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name? Uh, in scripture, name, name isn't just a, a label, uh, but name expresses the, the sum of a person's character. 
In the Bible, a name uh, is a description of the person's character. Um, you've all probably looked at baby naming books uh, that, that tell about names. And so um, Michael, my name, uh, means who is like God. Uh, Matthew means a gift of God. Now, interestingly, Matt means a, a piece of protective material placed on a floor. <laughs> Sarah means princess. Yes, it does. Timothy means honoring God. Zach means God has remembered. Maybuzz means ruler of death castle. And I bring that up because that's the name of our cat. And I think it's the best pet name ever. Maybuzz, ruler of death castle. Matt, I would, I'd consider Maybuzz. Maybuzz Gray. So, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your, is your name? And his name really captures two things about him. First, his, his transcendence. Uh, transcendence means literally exceeding usual uh, limits. God's transcendence refers to the infinite difference between God and man. That, that God is not simply uh, the highest in an ascending order, like a, a top 10 list where God is number one on the, on the top 10 list. No, God is in a totally different league uh, than man. God is totally different. His, his transcendence speaks to his apartness, his, his otherness, God's distinction from, from creation, that God is the uncreated creator that makes him unique and apart and different and transcendent from anything else in his creation. Isaiah 40, 25 says it this way, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then the rest of the chapter, go, uh, Isaiah goes on to ask, well, uh, am I, will you compare me with man? How about comparing me with a great man? How about comparing me to nations? How about comparing me to the entire universe? How about comparing me to your false gods? To whom will you compare me? And the point is, there is nothing and no one in all creation that compares with God. He is, he is transcendent. Hosea 11.9 says, For I am God and not a man. Doesn't that just sum up the difference nicely? He's God, we're not. And then not only his transcendence, his everything that sets him apart, but his, but his moral qualities. That God is morally perfect. That there is found in him no evil desire, no evil motive, no evil thought, no evil word, or no evil action. Deuteronomy says he is a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And both his transcendence and his moral quality then are expressed in all of his deeds, in creation, 
in, in providence, his oversight and care of all of his creation, in redemption and in his, in his final judgment. And verse one and two concludes with, with, from the grandness of all of creation to the, the smallness of a little baby, God's glory and majesty is attested by all. Brothers and sisters, this is the glory of God. But David also explores the glory of man. Which of us has never looked up into the night sky and just stood in awe of the vastness and the greatness of the universe in which we live? Uh, the universe is 10 billion light years times 6 trillion miles in diameter. So light years are the miles that uh, light can travel in a year times the diameter. So if you want a number, it's 60 followed by 21 zeros. So what, what analogy can we use for the vastness of the universe? Imagine taking your kids on a trip, how many times you'd have to answer, are we there yet? if you're trying to get across the universe. And what's amazing is that heaven is just the work of his fingers. It's, it's delicate work. It's not hard work. It doesn't say that God put his mighty arms to it, that, that God put his back to it. Uh, think about jobs that you do with your fingers. Uh, if you've ever worked on one of those uh, pottery wheels where you're, you're just using your fingers to make pots. And then I don't know what it's like in Arkansas, but in North Carolina, we have this red clay that is about two inches under the ground and absolutely hard as a rock. And if you're trying to dig in your garden, it's not the work of your fingers. Uh, it's it's whole, whole body uh, work. Uh, but, but God's creation is expressing. It wasn't difficult for God uh, to create all that he's created, this, this vast universe. And if even that universe dwarfs us, how much more should the God who created that universe with just a word, who spoke that universe into being, with just a word, how much more should we be humbled by him? In light of the vast creation which God personally formed with just the work of his fingers, David begins to think, and yet he thinks about man? And yet he cares about mankind? Why should that be? It does not make any sense. In light of God, in light of the vastness of, of the universe, we are so small, we are so insignificant. So, what is man? Well, 
the biological answer would be an accidental collection of cells. The sociological answer would be, well, he's a, he's a member of a community. The psychological answer would be, man is the sum of all his experiences and thoughts and feelings. But the biblical answer is this, man is the crown of God's creation. Man made in God's image to glorify him by rightly representing him, by serving him, and by enjoying a personal relationship with him. We see in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So what does it mean to be made in the, in the image of God? Image means something similar to, but not identical with. So it's like the difference between a stock car or Formula One car and your street car out in the, in the parking lot. Uh, I play basketball. Steph Curry plays basketball. Uh, I sing. Taylor Swift sings. See what I mean by similar but not identical. Not exactly like God, not equal to God. Remember God said, to whom will you compare me? Uh, so in what ways then are, are we like God? Well, we're not like God in, in body because we don't have one, or God doesn't have one. So God's image includes five things. It includes spirituality, that we're not simply biological creatures that are driven by instinct or, or, or some drive or some ingrained responses. Um, we're, we're spiritual beings. There's part of us that's, that's not tangible, that, that, you, that you can't touch, our, our souls, our, our, our spirits. And so being made in the image of God is to be spiritual. Uh, it's to have rational thought. To be made in the image of God means we're able to think and to reason and to learn and to create and to seek and to be curious. Uh, to be made in the image of God means we have a will. We have the ability to consider and, and to make choices based on our desires. It means we have mortality, uh, or morality, a, a sense of right or wrong. We have a conscious. And so spirituality and rational thoughts and will, mortality, and then affections, that, that we have emotions, we have feelings that, that aren't tangible. And of all that God created, only man has been created in his image. And the image of God gives man capacities that nothing else in creation has, that everything else in creation uh, lacks. For all the splendor of the heavens, and they are splendid as God's work, there is a splendor in man because we are made in God's image. There is a splendor of man that exceeds them all. That, brothers and sisters, is the glory of man. But we still need to ask this question. Why? 
What, what's the purpose? Why, why, would, why, would, why would man, why would God give man such glory? Why, why would he make us in his image? What's, what's the purpose? What was God thinking? Well, I, I believe to be made in God's image, you know, maybe people would say, well, he did that so that we would feel special. Well, no. Uh, we're made in God's image so that we would do three things. First, and this might be the most amazing, so that we could relate with him. Nothing else in all of creation is asking the question, what am I? The fact that David asked that question is significant. Nothing else's creation is asking or expecting an answer. Um, my dog isn't wondering about his relationship with me. He's not sitting at home at our Airbnb right now thinking, what is dog that Mickey would be mindful of me? He, he doesn't care about that. He, he just wants me to feed him and throw him his ball and, and take him for walks and scratch his stomach. That's, that's good enough. Uh, the fact that David is asking the fact that we, that we ask um, in relation to God is significant. God exists. I exist. What's the connection? And here is the truly remarkable thing. The God who we just described, this transcendent, perfect God, he created man in his image because he wants to relate with us. Secondly, he wants us to reflect his glory. Um, notice he says we're crowned with glory and honor. And we're not crowned with glory and honor for the purpose of glorifying ourselves or making much of ourselves, but so that we might reflect back his glory. Uh, most have heard the famous Westminster Confession. Uh, the first uh, answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God. Our main purpose is to glorify God. Uh, the catechism really expands on what that means. It says to glorify God is to manifest God's glory. Men glorify God when the design of their lives and actions is the glory and honor of God. When inwardly they have the highest estimation of him, the greatest confidence in him, and the strongest affections to him. This is glorifying of God in spirit. When outwardly they acknowledge, according to the revelations, that he hath made of himself, and when their lips they show forth God's praise, when they sincerely endeavor in their actions the exalting of God's name, the promotion of the interest of his kingdom in the world, and to yield that worship and obedience to him, which he has prescribed in his word. In, in other words, we glorify God when, when our thoughts and our actions and our words say what is true about him. When what we do, what we say, but not only that, what we think, our very inward thoughts and affections and, and motivations, they say what is true about him, about his character and about uh, his nature. That God has called us to live our lives in such a way 
uh, that people could observe us and say, oh, now I understand something about what God is like. Now, now, I, now I, I'm, I'm beginning to get the picture, of course not perfectly, but I'm beginning to get the picture of, of what God is like. So we're created in God's image so that we might relate with him, so that we might represent, uh, so that we might reflect his glory. And then lastly, so that we might represent him in our service. You notice in verses six through eight, he says, you have given him dominion. Again, in Genesis chapter one, when God says, let us create man in our image, the purpose was that they might have dominion over the earth, that they might uh, rule the earth on his behalf, that they might represent him. It's as, it's as if God said, look, I just created this really cool universe and I've made earth the best place in all the universe to live. Think of like the, the presidential suite in a ritzy hotel. And you, man, are my crowning achievement. Um, it's like my, my uh, two grandsons, 12 and 9, are, are at that age when they're really into cars. And it's like always, Pop, man, if you could own any car. You know, we saw this Ferrari, we saw this Lamborghini, and uh, they're always telling me, what, what kind of car would you have if you could have any? And I just, I just have my truck. No, no, Bobby, what's the matter with you? Um, I learned from them that the most expensive car in the world is the Bugatti La Voiture, sells for $19 million. So man being dominion, being dominion is like, having dominion is like God handing us the keys to this really cool car and, and saying, but don't bring it back wrecked. We've been given dominion and our, our purpose in life, as many people think, isn't just follow a set of rules. We're, we're called to so much more than that. The purpose of life is to serve God. And in the Old Testament, this great purpose to have dominion, uh, but now in the New Testament, uh, this great purpose to make disciples of all nations and, and to come alongside Jesus and to, and to help build his, his church. You know, people are, people are out there looking for meaning in their lives and for something meaningful to do. And beloved, what could be more meaningful than be able to represent God in our service in, in the world as we reflect his glory and do so or are empowered out of a relationship with him? So why did God make us in his image so that we could have the joy, the pleasure, the incredible, awesome privilege of knowing him personally and, and being able to relate with him, of being able to reflect his, his glory back to him and to the world and to represent him in this world by, by serving him and and, and serving his purposes. So let me just finish by asking this question. How should we respond? What, what should be our response to these, these glorious truths? Well, I think it's, it's fourfold. First of all, it's, it's faith. Did you notice in this psalm, David makes no attempt to explain 
why God is the way he is and why he relates to us the way that he does. He simply accepts this truth with joy. I don't understand it all, but I believe it because God's word, God's word says it. You know, there are limits to what we can know about God. We are finite creatures and God is infinite and the finite will never fully grasp the infinite. But God has given us everything we know we need to know about him to be able to relate with him, to be able to represent him, uh, to, be, to be able to, to glorify him. You know, sinful man wants to put God in a box, doesn't he? He, he, he wants a God that, that he can contain. He, wa- he wants a God that, uh, he wants all his, his questions answered. He doesn't want uh, a, a God that is, that is above and beyond him. Uh, isn't the book of Job interesting where uh, Job's question and he's, and he's wrangling and he's struggling with God, uh, but then when God shows up and just expresses his greatness to Job, uh, it was more than enough for him. In, in fact, it was, it was soul-satisfying. Not to have the question answered, God, why did you do this? What happened to me? But just to know, no, God, you're God, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a man. You're, you're God, and I am not. Uh, not to say we don't do all we can to study and try to understand. Uh, God has given us an intellect. Uh, Christianity isn't blind faith. It's intelligent faith because God has given us that capacity made in his image. So faith and then humility. In the world we live in, the world we live in is out of whack. The world doesn't ask, what is man that we should be mindful, uh, uh, that God should be mindful of us? The world asks, what is God that we should be mindful of him? Why should, why should I pay attention? Why, why should I follow him? We live in this age of, of humanism and an exaltation of man as the ultimate being, although now moving to man as being equal with earth and animals and et cetera, et cetera. J.I. Packer said, we are modern man. And modern men though they cherish great thoughts of man, have rather small thoughts of God. John Calvin says, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Even though God has crowned us with glory and honor, when, when, when like David, we, we consider the greatness of God and even in creation, our, our smallness, it, it ought to lead us to be humble. It, 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 should, it should lead us to be humbled by, by those realities. Uh, the third thing, faith and humility, is, is obedience. Uh, Willem van Gemmeren says, the dignity of man is a gift of God, 
and requires a relationship of responsibility as well as a response of praise to the great creator. Yes, it does. To be made in the image of God carries with it a huge responsibility. We're created in God's image not so we can compete with him. That's how sin came into the world. Because Satan tempted Adam and Eve to, why should God be God? Why shouldn't you have what God has? You, you, you should compete with him. We, we were created to serve him. We, we were created to obey him rightly. Uh, obedience that comes out of trust, obedience that, that comes out of love for him, that, that we would use our minds to think his thoughts after him, that we would use our affections to love the things that he loves, that we would use our wills to choose the things that he chooses. Uh, the band can come on up. It's interesting that as, as David does all of this deep thinking about God and about himself and about his relationship with God, he ends back at the very same place he started, doesn't he? David's last thought are, are to return to, to worship of, of God, uh, a worship that's an expression of his faith, an expression of his humility, an expression of his love, expression of his obedience, that at the end of the day, when all is said and done, when we consider the greatness of God and we consider the greatness and the glory that he's given insignificant man, our last thought on the subject should always be, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth.